Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. a seat. If you want to turn with me to John chapter 1, we're finishing up the prologue to the, the book itself. Before we get there, I guess I want to ask you a question. Let's just say hypothetically that God came to you on December 31st, 2019. He said, okay, listen up. And he just sat there with you. He said, I got, I got to lay out a couple scenarios for you. Scenario number one is that this next year is going to be horrible. And this next year is going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible physically, it's going to be terrible financially. It's going to be terrible relationally. It's going to be terrible emotionally. You're going to have spiritual faith crises like no other. And it's just going to be hard. But I, I, I tell you this, at the end of that, and it may not even be a year, it might be longer than a year, but at the end of that will be so much good and so much maturity in your life. Would you be willing to go that way? And he says, but hey, now I understand everyone's in a different spot. So let's just say, same day, December, 9th, December 31st, 2019, says, or, or, or it's going to be a pretty normal year. You'll have some hardships. You'll have some difficulties. You'll have some easiness. You'll make some mistakes. There'll be some struggles. But at the end of that season, you'll mature just a little. And you'll see a little bit more of my good. Which one would you choose? Which one would you choose, honestly? Number A, right? Mo- most of us would want to say, yeah, some of you are shaking your head, like, I'd probably choose B. Now, like, I'm, looking, I'm looking at this year and going, maybe I'd just uh, take this year as a little bit more maturity, God, like a little bit of goodness. I don't need all of it. I mean, it's kind of overwhelming anyways, right? But most of us would recognize that that, that, is a, that is a wrestle that we have to decide on. That is, a, that is a submission to his will or what he wants from us. And I think as Christians, all of us would say we'd hope that we'd choose the, la- the former. We'd hope we'd choose A. We want to be that person that says, oh man, whatever it takes, God, I will not run, run away. I will stay there. Like whatever it takes. But most of us, if we're honest, and if we look at the way we've been living in the last six to eight months, we probably see that we're more like the B the latter. We've, we've seen things pushed on us. The difficulties that this year has brought didn't, it didn't bring about new things. It just exposed what was already there and brought it out. And the reason why I begin by asking this question is because we're at a text that most of us, if you've spent any time in church, have gone to a, new, a Christmas Eve service and you've heard about the incarnation or the infleshing of Jesus. And if you think about it just for a moment, we talked about how the, the beginning of these 18 verses, this, this chunk of just thick theology that's done very poetically through the Greek, and it's just a profound thing that in one fly swoop just kind of slices through all the beliefs in this day and age and, and brings about truth, two massive truths, that Jesus is God and that life and salvation only comes through Jesus and believing in him. And he does it in these 18 verses, this condensed 18 verses, that ultimately he will come out and spell out in in longevity through the rest of the book. But if you think about it for just a moment, that's a very question. And I I don't know how it went between God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but that very question had to be answered for Jesus. Leave face to face, 
close, perfect harmony with no issue, no struggle, and put on flesh, put on, put on a, a body that starts to deteriorate and age and, and feels aches and pains, something that he had never experienced. And Jesus made that decision. And we'll get to why I believe he made that decision. But ultimately, there are massive present-day implications to this term incarnation, which we'll talk about in just a second. And so I'd hope that all of us would, would sit, just sit in this question for a moment. Like if you were honestly answering it, or if you just kind of ignored it and hoped I'd move beyond it so you didn't have to answer it, sit in this question of which would you choose if God came to you on December 31st of 2019? Which, which answer would you pick? In the scripture here, John is brilliantly doing things. Verse 14 is one of the thickest and, and richest and unbelievable texts of all of the Bible because it, in one fly swoop, beautifully articulates that Jesus is who he says he is and that ultimately life and joy and everything comes through him. So let's read it real quickly and then we'll dig in. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So in this section, it picks up right here in verse 14, which, which is what gave us the answer for everything before 14, that the word was Jesus Christ. Because he's saying, hey, the word was, in the beginning, word was God. And we saw all that in, chapter, in verse 1. And then it comes down here, and the word put on flesh, became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we've seen him as the only son, Jesus Christ. So we know that the word is in context to Jesus. This term flesh usually carries with it a negative uh, motion in Scripture. But here it has nothing to do with, with negativity here. It's just a literally putting on an infleshing or becoming, became flesh is a, is a statement that ultimately references not just the human body, but the will and the mind and the emotions of everything of Jesus. He became this way. And the word, the, the $2 word that we use is incarnation. It's a Latin word that we have put in place. It basically says God incorporated in flesh. This word is Why? we understand who Jesus is because he didn't take on part flesh. He didn't take on a, a mostly flesh and he didn't leave his divinity, his deity, his Godship behind. He still was fully God and fully flesh in one. And that's very important for us to understand. And the way that this is written in the Greek, there's no way to read it otherwise. Hebrews 2:17 and 4:15 teach that to save human beings, Jesus had to be made like us in every respect except our sin. The Son of God did not only become like man, he actually became truly and fully man. And we see in the Gospel of John all the attributes of Jesus, God. God as Jesus in the flesh. We see him experiencing what physical bodies that we're used to. We see in John chapter 4, verse 6, that he's weary. Chapter 4, verse 7, that he's thirsty. He, he groans in John eleven thirty three. He openly wept in John eleven thirty five, And on the cross, he thirsted, John 1928, and he died, John 1930, and bled, John 1934. After his resurrection, he proved to Thomas and the other disciples that he still had a real body, John chapter 20. What does he say after he raised from the dead? He, he worked up an appetite. Has anyone got a sandwich? He's hungry. 
He had a physical body, but he was fully God. Don't lose sight or disconnect this from the, from the work that we've done in the first 14 verses here. And it says that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. This word dwell was just a really, really, really powerful word in this day because, again, what it did is it took what every belief had in the system and it threw them out the door and made you have to confront the fact that this is what it means. This word del- dwells is, is tabernacled or tented with us, sort of taking every Jew back to the idea that, that the God was in the tent. He was the dwelling in the tent. This is God and this is who he is. It took them back to that spot and they realized that God was with them. But now what threw them for a loop was that God wasn't just in this one specific space. He was walking amongst them. And that's uncomfortable for people of Jewish belief. And for, for anyone of the pagan belief or, or Greek belief or any other view out there, gods were still meant to be in a temple, not out running about. The fact that they were moving and interacting with them would have been really scary for, every, for either side of those beliefs. And he says, no, he has dwelt. He has, he has become a one of us. He is, he, is, he is with us. He's around us. He is there in our place. And he's doing so and he's displaying his glory. We have seen his glory Glory as the only son. This word glory is, is a really wonderful word. It's, it's that we see his presence and his power. You see this in Jesus Christ. This, this glory was not merely a display of power, but for John, if we go through the rest of the book, we see in chapter 12 and a couple other places that ultimately the glory, the culmination of God's glory in Jesus Christ was at the cross. That that's the glory that was set before him. This is the glory that, this is the way that God is glorified in Jesus is at the cross. So the culmination, the craziest thing to think about, the, the, the pinnacle point of which Jesus is glorified comes through the death, burial, and resurrection at the cross. And then he says that he is full of grace and truth. Two really, really interesting words in the Hebrew were only attributed to God. These two words, this grace and truth, the way they were, were only attributed to God. And the grace is his loving kindness, his, his, um, his gracious mercy. And the second one, the truth, is, is faithfulness or steadfastness or consistency. And these are words that were only usually attributed to Yahweh, to God. And it says that Jesus, in Jesus, displays the glory. We've seen the glory, the power and the presence of God. And we know that ultimately he is full of both the loving kindness and the graciousness of God and the steadfastness and consistency of God. In this one verse, he, he puts the nail in the, in the coffin, ends it, finishes it, says there is nothing you can do outside of Christ when it comes to God and you have to settle that in your heart. You either believe this or you don't. There's no in between. In one verse, and then verse 15, it's in parentheses depending upon which version you have. A lot of people believe that this is supposed to go with verse 19 about John the Baptist, which 19 through 34 is all about John the Baptist. So that's where we'll cover that. But essentially, he's just using a witness, as John's purpose was, to show that Christ existed before John the Baptist and that ultimately he was greater than John the Baptist, even though in ministry he came after John the Baptist. We'll talk more about that in the next sermon. Verse 16, he says, the fullness, and this, this suggests the full resources of God stand behind the incarnate one. We see this in Colossians 1, 19, that, that it, the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. So this is just him bringing him back to like, don't forget, yeah, he came in person. He put on flesh, but the fullness of God was still dwelling in him. There wasn't a, a half and, he had both. So when Satan tempted Jesus to say, turn that rock into bread, Jesus had every bit of his godness to be able to do that but had to restrain himself. 
is fully there. And then it uses this word, this term, grace upon grace. Scholars disagree on that word that goes between grace. It could be grace replacing grace or grace instead of grace, or it could be grace and more grace. But ultimately, at the end of the day, they all agree that this is a grace that is something that is beyond. It's immeasurable. It's an immeasurable amount of grace. Or what makes the most sense is grace replacing grace. Which if you spend any time with God, you realize that that's true in your life because you've needed grace and then you've needed grace again and grace again. So I love that Paul says he has lavished grace on us. That word lavish means more than enough. You're never short on grace. In Jesus, because of the incarnation, because of who he is, we have grace replacing grace, replacing grace in our lives. It's very powerful. And then in verse 17, he brings in this idea of the Mosaic Law. This would have been a really tough one for everyone to, to kind of read it. If you read it just kind of at hand, it looks like he's almost talking negatively towards the Mosaic Law. He's, he's not at all. Really what he's trying to do is he's trying to show uh, the value of how both what came through Moses and what came through Jesus was a culmination of working together. Really, you see in John chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, he talks very positively about the law in Moses. Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So he's, he's not in any way saying it had no purpose. He's saying what the law did was it showed people of their sin, but it could not forgive them of their sins. The law fell short on that. And so they had to go to the high priest to have their sacrifices done so that they could experience uh, freedom in Christ. And the year of atonement, they had all these festivals. So what he's saying ultimately is that they both came in place. But what, the, what Jesus brought, the revelation of Jesus, is the word is that he brought grace and truth. One scholar says it this way. He says, the grace that characterized the, or characterizes the revelation and redemption is underscored by a comparison with the old covenant mediated through Moses, the deliverance under the first redeemer, as many rabbis viewed Moses, issued in the gift of the law. This was given not as a burden, but as a revelation of God's will for his people. The law was never meant to be a burden. It was a revelation of God's will to the people of God. So they knew how they are to live. Okay, and he goes on and says, but as a revelation of God's people, the redemption brought about by the second redeemer, the Logos, Christ, Jesus, occasioned a revelation of God and an experience of salvation characterized by grace and truth. By this means, the earlier revelation of the covenant faithfulness of God was brought to an eschatological fulfillment, an end-time fulfillment, a, a future fulfillment. The second exodus under the Logos, Christ, led to the new order of the eternal kingdom of God. So what is he saying? He's saying what the law could reveal sin, but it could never remove sin. Jesus Christ came with full fullness of grace and truth, and this fullness is available to all who trust in him. Grace is God's favor and kindness bestowed on those who do not deserve it and can't not earn it. If God dealt with us according to truth alone, none of us would survive. But he deals with us on the basis of his grace and truth. Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection met all the demands of the law that none of us could ever, ever have met. And now God is free to share the fullness of his grace with us who trust in Christ because grace without truth would be deceitful and truth without grace would be condemning. Jesus is the culmination of that, the incarnation, the infleshing, the him putting on flesh, walking in this world, brings all of that to fruition for us. 
And then in verse 18, he, he says something that kind of at first seems to arise a problem because he says no one has ever seen God. Um, this is hard because we see at Mount Sinai that, that, that Moses was face-to-face with God. That is actually more face-to-face with his glory. We also see Moses asking in Exodus. We see him asking to see God, and God says, you, can, you can't see me, you'll die. Anyone who sees me will die, but I'll let you see my glory pass in front of you. And so he sees the back end of his robe, the glory, and that's where Moses lit up like a Christmas tree. I don't know. That's a bad example. Sorry. Lit up. I don't know what that means. Um, but he was bright and glowing, and, and he had to veil his face because he had seen God's glory. And so what he's saying here ultimately is that no one has ever seen God, the only God, so Jesus, who is at the Father's side. Now, this Father's side term, this is really interesting. This is the same term that's used about John, the Apostle John, in resting in the bosom of Jesus at the dinner table at the Last Supper. So he's saying, the only Son, the God, Jesus, who rests in the Father, who sits in the presence of the Father, who dwells in his presence, he's the one who's seen God. And then Jesus goes on further, and we'll talk about this in John. And he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's a, that's a big thing. Every Jew and Gentile in that day would have been like, whoa, okay, wait, wait, wait. We've, we've, the fullness of God is in this person. He's dwelling with God. And somehow God is now with us. He's with us and he's, he's walking with us. He's experiencing life with us. And he's somehow interacting with us and we're able to see him and, and eat with him and experience him. And then Jesus ultimately says, or he says here, John says, he's, and he has made him known. This word known is where we get our word exegesis to understand or to unfold or to explain is what we get. So he's saying ultimately that, that we can't understand God apart from knowing the Son of Jesus Christ. We can't, or the, or the Son, Jesus Christ. If we don't know Jesus Christ, we can't understand God. And Jesus Christ is the one that makes God known to us. He's the Word. He's the revelation of God. He's the one that, that brings it about for us. So it's, okay, great. We just did our Christmas Eve service early. You guys can miss that service when we get to it. The incarnation, that's what we do. What does it really mean for us? And as I thought about it quite a bit, there's, there's a lot of really present-day implications for you and I, and I think are very applicable to 2020 in our life right now, on what it means for Jesus to have put on flesh, to have taken incarnation, to have walked among us. And so I'm just going to lay out, there's a million really beautiful implications. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to talk about a few here. What's the first thing that, that we can understand in Jesus taking our incarnation? Is that ultimately perfect sacrifice. That means salvation through belief in Christ. Because he put on flesh, we have the perfect sa- sacrifice. Why? Because the old covenant was the sacrificial system that needed to happen. They had to have the sacrifice to atone for their sins. An animal had to be, blood had to be spilled on behalf of that person to do so. It says it here in Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become, what? A merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to pay for it, to, to fully absorb and take on the punishment of the sins of the children of God. He had to take on flesh. So the very first thing that incarnation means is the only way that we can experience the sacrifice that it will be once and for all. Because if you remember, the high priest system was a one person in a holy spot behind the veil in the temple. It was a sacrificial system that happened. And once a year, they did the, the Passover meal. And once a year, they did the Day of Atonement. And what would happen is the high priest would then have to go and sacrifice an animal for himself for his own sins to make himself holy, and then he'd tie a rope to himself, go into the veil to sacrifice the lamb for the people of Israel. 
in hopes that he wouldn't die or have sinned or not have done it right, they had the rope tied so they could pull him out of there so that no one would sin by going into the holy place. Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is why I'm trying to get someone to name their kid Melchizedek. I'm telling you, it's a good name. He's after that order. He's the priest and the king. He's the order after that. And so think about it. The high priest would atone for their sins and then stub his toe and say some explicit and be like, ah, give me another dove. You know, I'd have to do this all over again. And he'd have to keep doing this before he could step in there. Jesus didn't have to do that because he never sinned. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the one that we can experience salvation. He took on flesh, fulfilled the law that none of us could fulfill and took the punishment for all of us for not fulfilling the law. He's the perfect sacrifice. So the first thing that incarnation means is salvation for us. And that should give every single one of us, oh, praise Jesus. Once and for all, a sacrifice that doesn't need to keep sacrificing. I don't need to keep trying to pay it. I don't need to keep trying to earn this. It's been given to me once and for all, and it covers not only my past sins, but my present sins and my future sins. Praise Jesus for his grace upon grace upon grace. Second implication in this is that we see he's a high priest, but he's more than that. He's a sympathetic high priest. We get this out of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest, speaking of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. If that is all you hear today, let that sink into your heart. Jesus, he knows what you're feeling. He knows what emotions are coming out of you, and he can sympathize with He's not a high priest that's powerful that just stands up in his throne and says, okay, take care of it. He's a high priest that put on, inconvenienced himself, the uncomfort of flesh, and came in and dwelt among us so that he could sympathize with us in every way. What does it go on to say here? It says, so but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This one should be ringing so true in our heads right now. But you know what I hear from people after people? people after people in this church and around this valley I talk to. The harder and harder and harder they get, you know what they do? They don't run to the throne of grace. They run from it. They run from it and try to do it on their own. All the people I've talked to that have anxiety and frustrations and struggling and all these different things, as I talk to them, I say, well, how is, how is your walk with the Lord? They, they, they always say one iteration of, it's not really there right now. I'm not in community. I'm not in his word. I'm not in prayer. And, and right here, we have a sympathetic high priest that we should be running to in confidence, in boldness, because we can draw near to him because he has drawn near to us. We have a sympathetic high priest. We have salvation, perfect salvation in Jesus Christ. Another thing that the incarnation brings is an example. It says it all over, but 1 Peter 2, 21 says this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is why I began the service asking the question I did. Because right now, many of us are suffering. And I won't make light of your suffering. Yes, there's someone all over the world that is suffering way worse than you, but that doesn't negate your suffering. But Jesus, in our incarnating and in taking on flesh, he's given us an example on how to suffer. He's given us an example on how to suffer. One of the things he did, right, on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
well, that's really hard. Like, they're, they're doing a lot of things to him. And he's God. Of course he can do it. Okay, well, Stephen did the exact same thing. So it must be possible for us to do so. He gave us an example. And you want to know how he did it? And this is, this is the one that I think is just, when God hit me with this this week, I was so thankful for it. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Tells us to run the race right before here, and this is in verse two. Looking to Jesus, the founder, the beginner, and perfecter or completer of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Why would he endure the cross? Because the joy that was set before him. And I get what you're thinking. Oh, yeah, well, the joy was salvation and sitting at the right hand of God, like it goes on to say. What do we have? We have the joy set before us. This is not our home. Whoever gets elected this week isn't our king. Our God and king is Jesus. We are of a kingdom that is outside of this world. We are aliens, sojourners for a season to pray and plead for God to bring his kingdom down here on earth as it is in heaven. This is the hope we have for us. The hope that we have is to live our life in a way that lets us, um, someone wants their Wi-Fi shared. Sorry, I'm not going to do it. Anyways, um, this is the way that hopes us to do that. (laughs) This is the way that we have hope is because we know that we have a joy set before us that this is not home. That this isn't it, guys. Praise Jesus, this isn't it. We have a home where we get a resurrected body where there is no pandemic, there is no divisiveness, there is no fear, there is no anxiety or depression or drugs or sickness or darkness. There's only light, and that light is Jesus Christ. That's what we have hope for. Jesus gave an example when he walked on this dark world, which let me just tell you was just as dark, if not darker then, than it is today. And he brought light for all men to see. And he showed us how to suffer. He showed us how to suffer and to suffer well. So go back to that question I asked you. Are you willing to suffer? Why would Jesus be an example if we weren't to expect some kind of suffering? We don't need an example if it's not something we have to do. James, Jesus' brother, told us this, just to give you guys one more reason to suffer. It's not just suffering. It's an attitude behind it. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. When you, meet tri- tri- when you meet trials of various kinds. This, this word various kinds, these trials, are trials that are brought into you. They're not trials you're experiencing because of our own stupidity and sinfulness. It's the sinfulness and stupidity of other people or the broken world. The trials, these are not things you did. They come at you. And he says what? Consider it pure joy. Consider it all joy. Why in the world would you take joy in those trials? Why? Because he goes on and tells you. Because for you know, you know this, that the testing of your faith produces, there's that word, steadfastness that Jesus is full of grace and truth, that steadfastness. The one that we talked about right at the beginning. He is full of it. He says, it's producing us. What? The testing of our faith is producing that steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect or complete and lacking in nothing. Well, I don't know about you, but I feel like I lack in a whole lot of things. So Jesus, bring on the suffering. Because what is being done is far greater than the suffering in this moment. Our life is equated to a vapor. So it may feel like a long, drawn-out, arduous 2020 year, but it is but a vapor, and it's gone. And we can suffer as an example here. We can suffer well. We can count on joy because God is doing something. We see in Scripture that He's producing something that's far greater than gold. That this faith he's given us is not only something that he's gifted us, but it's something that he will perfect in us. He's made a promise here in Hebrews that he's not only the beginner, but he will be the completer of our faith. And that may come through suffering. So instead of running and and fleeing suffering, instead we should remain under, as James says in, in his book, 
Remain under. Don't squirm out. Don't run away. God is doing something. And what he is doing is good, despite what the circumstances say or show around you. So we have a perfect salvation in the incarnation. We have a a sympathetic high priest that we can draw near to with confidence. And we have an example. So how are you doing with your example? Let's come back to that question. Which one do you want? Do you want the hard year? The suffering that will bring about steadfastness and steadfastness when it's completed will make us lack nothing? Or do you want the okay year? Maybe a little bit less pain. The answer to that question ultimately helps us realize if we've got our eyes set on what is before us in the future or what's in front of us in this world. But you would only answer to the primary if your eye is fixed not on this world but on his kingdom. You're not going to want suffering unless your eyes are fixed on the kingdom. The entirety of the Sermon on the Mount is reminding you to do things to restore rewards in heaven beyond where moth and rust don't destroy. So you're not going to want to live with suffering if you're too fixated on this world. Instead, what you're going to do is you're going to say, God, bring me comfort. Don't stretch me too hard. Don't make it difficult. Because you've got your eyes fixated on the vapor that is in front of you as opposed to the eternity that is before us. This is what the incarnation brings. We're going to do, we've done a few baptisms today already. One scholar said this before I get to it. He said, if you look at scripture, and I just thought this was so good. He said, if you look at scripture, you don't see a neutral response to Jesus. Anytime anyone interacts with Jesus, they either want to kill him or they want to run from him or they'll give their life entirely to him. And as I was praying this week for the church, as it's just the church in America as a whole, I feel like there's a lot of mediocre responses to Jesus in the church, myself included. And that there's no option there. You're either going to kill him, run from him, or you're going to give your entire life to him. When we go to baptism, that's what baptism is. It's a declaration of the life that I have in Jesus Christ. It's a proclaiming of that. And I say this every time we do baptisms because inevitably there's always someone that is here that has either not gotten baptized because they just don't like the way their hair looks when it's wet or they're afraid to be in front of someone or because they're just afraid to commit to it or they believe some fallacy that, that they have to be perfect to be baptized as if Jesus didn't do that for them and isn't doing it in them. And so I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. If you're here today and you, have, you profess the name of Jesus and you have not been baptized, baptism is an opportunity to, to display your likeness to Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 3 through 4 says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized, what? Into his death. We went down into the water. We were buried in the water. And therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. You come out of the water and you do that. So when you get baptized, you're proclaiming that I am one with Jesus and Jesus is one with me, that he is my sympathetic high priest and I am about living his life for his glory and his glory alone. That's what baptism is. Baptism doesn't save us. It says, Romans 3.23 says, it's by faith we've been saved. Baptism is a display of it. I've used this before. It's like a wedding ring. I'm not married because I'm wearing a wedding ring. I'm, it's a symbol of what I'm doing. If I take this off, I'm, I'm not married. And then I put it back and I'm married. If you do that, guys, you've got problems. Let's talk, okay? But that doesn't mean it. It's a symbol. It's, I get baptized because of what God has already done in my heart, the center of who I am. I get baptized because I proclaim his goodness to the world. That's what baptism is. 
And we have a few people, we have one actually this service, we had a few earlier, they got baptized. And, and baptism is something that we as a body do together. And baptism is an opportunity to declare the goodness of God. Anyone making this step should bring joy to every believer in the presence. Because it's a good thing. It's a good thing. When we talk about salvation, the, Peter tells us that, that literally that the angels looked down on that day. They, they peered over to see what was happening when Jesus was on the cross because they knew that this was the moment that they'd all heard about. That in this moment that God was going to send himself and incarnate down there. And that was such a big deal that literally the angels that were singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, paused that symphony and looked and peered and watched as the cross happened. So when someone gets baptized, we celebrate. We celebrate because it's, it's, the, it's the culmination of that life that's brought through Jesus Christ alone. We're also going to do communion today, which I think is a really wonderful thing to do when we're talking about the incarnation, the flesh of Jesus. Remember, he says, if you, if you want to follow him, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. What he's saying is, ultimately, you have to rest and submit yourself to the covering of his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. So when we proclaim of communion, we take that and do that, and we're going to do that after the baptisms. And so, real quickly, if, if Betty, if you're ready, come on up here. And then, um, Zach, please, we're going to do the baptism. I'm going to get this organized here. My name is Betty Matthews. I was saved by Jesus of Nazareth. I follow Jesus even though sometimes I make bad choices and mistakes. I know that he forgives me and loves me. He wants all of us to know him. He, create, he created us to love him and worship him from the beginning of the world. From the beginning of the world. I believe that Jesus is the only one who can save us. And when he, is de di when he died on the cross, he took our sins for us. Baptism reminds us of when Jesus died, what was buried and rose again. We obey the Holy Spirit, we obey the Holy Spirit, follow God and enjoy him forever because of Jesus sacrifice for us. The band is going to come up and we're going to worship some more and I will be in the back of the room for any of you that are ready to get your clothes wet. Water's mostly warm. Betty doing that is us as a body coming around Betty now to continue to point her to the commitment she's making in Jesus, to continue to point her to the truth. We as a church body are on the hook to disciple her and to love and to come alongside the family to show them what it means to walk this faith out. Communion is again an opportunity to proclaim the goodness of God. It's not only to remember what he has done for us in the past, but it's also a proclamation of what he is going to do for us in the future, which is his resurrection and our resurrection. And so when you are here, if you want to, instead of normally we kind of take it and we lead you through it, we're going to let you guys take it as individuals, as families, or, or as gospel communities if you're here, wherever it may be. You can go grab it from any of the tables and take it whenever you're ready. But do this for me. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're taking communion and you have any unforgiveness or unrepentant sins, please go before the Lord first to do that. Maybe send that text message if you have some bitterness towards someone saying, I need to have this conversation with you. I want to be right. Jesus tells us that when, when offering something, you know your brother has something against you, first go be reconciled and then bring your offering back. So I'd encourage you to do that. If you are here and you're like, man, I do have that, here's the best part about Jesus is it's grace replacing grace replacing grace. There's nothing you have done that is too far gone. There's nothing you've done that a sacrifice cannot and did not pay for. And so you can boldly approach the throne room. Therefore, you can boldly approach the table, knowing that you've been reconciled, not by your own doing, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ability to worship you. 
in our life. We thank you for baptism. We thank you for showing us a way that we can display to this world that we are yours. Our allegiance is to you, not to a political party, not to a a country, but to you and your kingdom alone. Father, I pray for, for every individual that's here today. I pray that their hearts will be overtaken by your goodness. Father, I pray as we look at what it means for you to have indwelt in us and to, to tabernacled with us, to tented with us, God, as we look at that, I pray that it would remind us of the salvation we have in you alone, that we have a sympathetic high priest that we should be confidently coming to, and that ultimately, God, you have given us an example so that we can walk this world for your glory and your glory alone. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all you do. And God, as we sing, I pray we sing not as men and women just uttering words out of our mouths, but as your children proclaiming of your goodness and who you are, joining in with the angels as they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God.